Well, I see some new faces here this evening, which is always a, a great pleasure. Uh, and you join us, as Jonathan has said, in this series in Isaiah. Now, for most of us, let's be honest, uh, Isaiah, if we know it at all, is a book in which there are favorite bits. And for many of us, it's the bits that go up to the Christmassy bits, up to about chapter 9, and then it's the bits from about chapter 40, the bits that look like Jesus is on his way. And the bits in the middle we may not be so sure of. Now, I've taken a decision um, which seemed to make sense at the time. Let's see what's in Isaiah all the way through. Now, I I said to... uh, Uh, If you're here, therefore, for the first time, you find us in an oracle against one of the nations, Babylon, chapter 21. Uh, It's on page 704. But I said to Jonathan, as he was preparing the service, uh, look, I know that the rest who've been here throughout, the poor evening congregation is by this point on its knees saying, please, not more oracles against the nations. Uh, Well, there is good news that this bit is coming to its end. We will just get a couple more chapters in, and we'll take a break from Isaiah, and we'll do something uh, New uh, New Testament-y. But I do want just to say uh, that uh, these long series can have their effect, because actually it means that by the time we do get to the bits that, that are famous, that we're familiar with, bits beyond chapter 40, we're reminded that it all comes on top of this Uh, assertion time and time again that God has something to say to the nations. Uh, And uh, in the passage in front of us tonight, there's uh, what I suppose you might call a spooky bit and a sensible bit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are citizens of a nation. We are amongst your people. And in the different ways in which you uh, rule our times and our generations, we pray that you would give us a deep wisdom to know how to respond to uh, your uh, control and your responsibility for this world that you've made. Amen. Uh, the first uh, the bit, the bit that I call the spooky bit, it runs from uh, verse 1 through to verse 5, and we need to set it up with some kind of background. And I'm going to steal what I thought was the best explanation uh, of some of this that we've uh, heard Uh, from Colin Bearup when he preached to us a few uh, weeks ago. He said, imagine the situation going into pretty much actually either of the great world wars that uh, happened in the last century. And imagine that you are Belgium. Uh, On either side of you, you have two uh, very big countries, France and Germany, but you're a little country. Now, uh, imagine that France, knowing the way the wind is blowing, uh, is very concerned about the possibility of German invasion uh, and says to you, uh, oh, little Belgium, how about we get together? Uh, I I can't keep that going for too long. (laughs) 
don't know where it would lead. Um, uh, how about we get together, and together we make an alliance uh, to deal with Germany. Now, it might make sense. It might look like uh, it makes sense. Uh, but, of course, it's also possible that uh, facing the situation as it was on the ground, the Germans might be more deeply resentful of a Belgium that has gone into alliance with France and might be more threatening towards it. Now, let's kind of decode those three countries for the times that are written about here. There are three powers that are important in these first five verses. One is Babylon, one is Assyria, and one is Israel, or Judah, sorry, to be more precise. The great world empire at the time is Assyria. Uh, Judah is a tiny little country, and various um, other smaller countries than Assyria have tried to draw Judah into their plots and their plans to resist the great world empire of Assyria. And up to now, in the chapters we've been dealing with, one of those countries has been Egypt. And Judah has looked to Egypt and said, well, maybe if we cozy up to Egypt, we'll be safe from Assyria. Now, actually, by this point, what's happened, though, is that great victories have been won by the Assyrians against Egypt. Egypt is in a weakened position. And so, faced with the weakening of uh, Egypt, uh, Judah has decided to get a little interested in the country of Babylon. Maybe if we cozy up to Babylon, we'll be able to resist the power of Assyria. Now, that, that's more difficult for a number of reasons, not least because at least Egypt was next door. Assyria, let me see, um, Assyria was northeast quite a long way from Israel. Sorry, northeast in your way is over there. So northeast is quite a long way. Uh, whereas uh, Babylon was kind of pretty much straight across the desert east. And Babylon was in the Assyrian Empire, but it had, it had always been rebellious. And it was going through a particularly rebellious phase under a, a king who was splendidly called Merodach Baladan. Wouldn't you love to be called Merodach Baladan? Anyway, uh, Merodach Baladan was really kicking off over in Babylon and giving the Assyrians a hard time. Because he was giving the Assyrians a hard time, the Ju Judeans said, if we cozy up to Babylon, then maybe we'll be safe because Babylon will do all our big fighting for us and, th and they'll be happy at the end of it that we were in alliance with them. And this uh, uh, text that we have in front of us tonight is really Isaiah saying... Do not flee from the frying pan into the fire. Don't go from being in alliance with Egypt, thinking they will save you, because they didn't, uh, to Babylon, thinking that they will save you, because they won't. But, but none of this, unhelpfully, is actually written down for us with, here's a bit to Babylon, here's a bit to Assyria, and here's a bit to Judah. So we have to work with what we've got. And what it works out at is like this. An oracle concerning the desert by the sea. We know Babylon is mentioned later, but um, Merodach Baladan, part of his name meant by the sea. So already we know from the beginning of chapter 21 that what Isaiah is uh, saying is the place by the sea that sounds wet is actually completely dry and barren. So already setting 
uh, the town and saying there's going to be no help. It's, going to be, it's not going to be fertile, it's not going to be fruitful, it's not going to be full of fish, it's just going to be totally barren, what I'm going to tell you about. And um, like whirlwinds sweeping through the Southland, the, the south of Judah was notorious for these kind of uh, whippoorwills, these kind of uh, um, small uh, dust storms that would sweep through the land. An invader comes from the desert, uh, from a land of terror. Uh, and then we get this verse 2. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Elam attacked Medea, lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. Now, Elam and Medea were two countries, even further out to the east, who we know from the record uh, were in alliance with Babylon at this time. So there is no point in Assyria being the one saying Elam attack. Medea lay siege. It looks, therefore, as though verse 2 is actually, as it were, in the mouthpiece of Babylon. And that would make sense if, as we know from later in the book of Isaiah, chapter 39, emissaries have come from Babylon to say, hello, Israel, hello, Judah. Uh, we'd really like some help. Um, we'd love it if you joined in with ourselves and with Elam, and with Medea, because, you know, the Assyrians, they're really not very nice people. They have a tendency to betray their alliances, and nothing is safe in their hands, not even property. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. But we think we've got the answer. We're going to rebel against the Assyrians, and actually we're going to bring to an end, end of verse 2, all the groaning she caused. So verse 2 comes from a kind of visit, and we know it was paid because it comes in, in, in the narrative, not these oracles, but in the narrative later in the book of Isaiah. It comes from the visit paid by the Babylonians to Judah, saying, come on in with us, because there is this terrible army uh, a, a dreadful vision of, uh, of a, a country that is, is just built on betrayal. What terrible people those Assyrians are, said the Babylonians. At this point, Isaiah, Isaiah's own voice takes over into verse 3. Because he knows from God that the Babylonians are just as bad as, and probably worse than, the Assyrians they're complaining about. And, and so it proved, in fact, in history. There, there was uh, the, the clash of Assyria and Babylon and the multiple breaking of treaties and alliances was extraordinary in that time. And so what Isaiah is going through in verse 3 is a recognition that um, not only is this going to be bad news politically, don't do it, it would be foolish. But the horror of it seizes him because he knows it's going to be just as bad as, if not worse, than we're, the mess we're already in. My body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. I'm staggered by what I hear. This physically engages him. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I longed for there is oppression by day, so you hope to get to the end of it and at least get to your bed. But even that now 
has become a horror. It just does not stop. That's his nightmare. But uh, uh, the, the picture kind of gets worse. Because the Babylonians and the Judeans, the authorities, the, I guess the, the king, uh, sits down with the uh, ambassadors from Babylon and they have a feast. And they sort it out at the level of high-level politics. They set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Get up, you officers, let's, let's polish the shields and show off and make our... It would be like the equivalent would be having a, a big military parade to say, look what we can do. Look what we can do together. Us Babylonians and us Judeans. We can make an alliance and it will be really powerful and intimidating and let's toast the victory that will be ours. So it's going backwards and forwards in this awful shuttling as Isaiah physically feels the drama, the nightmare that is coming if his people are stupid enough to believe the Babylonians. And yet at the same time, all his sweetness and light in the press conferences are being held and the communications officers are in there spinning the news as best they can. That's the spooky bit. Because you have to kind of work out who's speaking and doing what. Now, of course, you'll realize that th that has to be uh, a pretty good guess by quite a lot of commentators as to the ordering of things. But if you want to quarrel and say, no, I think I've got a better explanation, that's fine. Come to me afterwards and uh, we'll, uh, I'm happy to talk about it. Because it is contested. It's not, it's not dead easy. That's why it's what I meant by I said it's spooky. Then we get to verse 6 and it does get a little more clear. From the bit that feels uncertain, we come now to the bit that is absolutely certain. This is what the Lord says to me, said Isaiah. Go. Post a lookout and have him report what he sees. When he sees chariots with teams of horses, riders on donkeys and riders on camels, let him be alert, fully alert. Well, there's a, bit of a, there's a few clues there, won't go into them all, uh, that say this is an, a great army from the east because the way the uh, horses and, and the riders are described tells us it's an eastern army. So Isaiah, you go and post the lookout. Then the lookout shouted, verse 8, Day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. And he gives back the answer, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Isaiah is letting us know from God that Babylon itself will not stand. And in fact, uh, Zennacherib, the uh, Assyrian king, absolutely flattened uh, Babylon at this point. I mean, it literally flattened it. If you've seen the pictures from Waco, that's the kind of flattening that went on. And having flattened it, he then drowned it. He poured on vast quantities of water just to wash it all away. Assyria will emerge triumphant. So don't think that if you get cozy with Babylon, it's going to save you. Because what I have from the Lord is Babylon itself is going to fall.
O my people, verse 10, crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I have heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. You are crushed. I know already you are crushed. And it feels like God has just threshed the threshing sledge. We would perhaps say just you've been gone over with a steamroller. I know what it feels like, but it will get worse and not better if you get into alliance with the Babylonians. Who's this from? From the Lord Almighty. Now at this point, just look at verse 6. You'll see the word Lord is in little letters. And in verse 10, you'll see the word Lord is in big letters. In verse 6, it means the Lord. <laughs> means That's all it means. But it's, it's the title, the Lord. When you see those little, little capitals, though, in verse 10, and you'll see them throughout the uh, Old Testament, what that means is that the word Lord has been substituted for the name of God, the name of God, Yahweh, but that became too holy a name to utter, and so uh, the Old Testament writers started to insert this word instead, the Lord, and it just stood for his name. So in verse 6, he is the Lord, the one in charge. In verse 10, he is Yahweh, the Almighty. What can we say about this one? Firstly, he is, and this is the word that's going to be important later on, he is what we call sovereign. He is the one who has all the might. He is all-powerful, all-mighty. He also... According to verse 10, he has a people. He is the God of Israel. Now, way, way back, at the beginning of Isaiah's vision of God, uh, Isaiah says, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. At the very beginning, Isaiah knew that his job was to speak, not just, well, in fact, not really very much in relation to himself, but in relation to the people to whom he belonged. This God is all-powerful, and this God has a people. This God has a people, that's one scale at which he is operating, but then according to verse 10 here in chapter 21, he can cope with the small crush, the tiny level, the other scale, I know you are crushed. I know you are feeling very small. And so one question, and we've gone through so many of these oracles of the nations now, that it's worth asking one of these broad questions. Who's in charge of your life? Is, it's not a trick question. Is God in charge? Now I suspect that if I could go around each one of you one by one and say, is God in charge? either of your life or of the world, you'd get mm, sort of. Now, sort of, we know, is the one answer that Scripture is never going to give. Scripture is never going to have sort of, kind of, as its answer. If we follow a, a Jesus who we know is 100% God and 100% man. We know that he's not 
sort of a bit human and a bit divine. If we follow a Jesus who's 100% man and 100% God, we kind of know intuitively what the answer is going to be. Yes, God is totally in charge, and yes, God, and yes, you are totally in charge. That may not sound like it makes very much sense, but that's partly because we put the question in those terms, who's in charge? Let me ask a different question. Who is responsible? If I... Um, decide to... So I decided this afternoon to take my bike and to bike up to the park. Who is responsible for me getting to the park? Uh, if I had not ex- used the... Bu- the, the um, if I had not made the decision to go to the park, I would not have got there. If I had tried to get on my bike, forgetting that I do not have the use of my legs, I would not have got there. Therefore, that I got to the park was the responsibility of me for making the decision to go to the park and of God for giving me the ability to get there. Behind our in-chargeness, God is in charge. And you can play with any of those things in your life, any of those decisions. You can play with the question of, uh, not with who's more in charge, but each time you can go back one further and say, ah, yes, well, I couldn't have done that without that, and that couldn't have happened without that, and that couldn't have happened without, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And eventually you end up in such a quagmire, such a fog, that you end up saying, I have no idea what's going on. You go back to the Bible, and the Bible is quite clear that you are totally responsible for your life. Nonetheless, God is totally responsible for your life. We've just had, uh, in the last week, extraordinary events. And we kind of want to let God off the hook. How can we know? Uh, It seems appalling to suggest that God was, in a sense, responsible for the bombings in Boston, but he could have stopped them. And how many times in the record of Scripture do we find that God brings a nation to its knees by crushing them in this way? It's no kind of answer to hope that our sort of Let's God off the hook. The Bible is clear that for reasons of his own that we will never understand, even the really awful things are in some way God's responsibility, just as they are in some way our responsibility. And if we have real responsibilities, a passage like this asks How are we to exercise them? After all, this uh, passage, 1 to 10, it's not a nice, harmonious little exercise in which God's responsibility and our responsibility all work neatly together. They are clashing. That's the point of what Isaiah is saying. And if we face our responsibilities properly, how are we going to manage unless we've got an Isaiah in our pocket to warn us? Look at uh, verse 5 again. 
They set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink, get up, you officers, oil the shields. This is a high-level political conference. Well, we've lived through enough of those. We've lived through enough um, speeches and two uh, heads of state sitting down and, and writing their signatures on some treaty or other. We've watched verse 5 happen in front of our eyes often enough. And you have to ask, well, what were they supposed to do, Isaiah, if not verse 5? What were any of us, politically, what are any of our countries supposed to do if we're not supposed to do the best we can with what we've got? What What was Isaiah supposed to get them to do? Well, the answer does come several times in Isaiah, and he has one word for it, wait. It is the most alarming answer of all. I know you're crushed, but wait. I know it's awful, but wait. That's what uh, I I propose as uh, an answer, uh, lack it if We don't have an Isaiah. But of course, we do have an Isaiah. We have the final, the full, authentic prophet, Jesus. Would you turn to uh, the book of Revelation, um, final book in the Bible, and to chapter 21 and verse 1. Sorry, not chapter 21, uh, chapter 18. Angel appears from heaven saying, towards the end of Revelation, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a home for demons and a haunt for every spirit, evil spirit. All the nations, verse 3, have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Don't be like Babylon. And what was wrong with Babylon? Well, everything was wrong with Babylon. It was the center, so much the center that it became, all the way through biblical history, the the absolute cartoon image of everything that could be wrong in the world. God's purposes are bigger even than Babylon with its history in Scripture. God's purposes are bigger than the world, as Elizabeth said in answer to Jonathan's question. He, uh, uh, He holds a whole universe in his hands. So faced with our responsibilities, what are we to do? Lacking an Isaiah, but having Jesus... They were supposed to wait in chapter 21 of Isaiah. What are we supposed to do? Sometimes it will be to wait. But whatever we do, we are to avoid Babylon. We're to avoid using the means that made sense to Babylon, forming the treaty. It was, after all, it was Babylon that came to Judah, forming the treaties, using the world's weapons to get around God's ways. And I kind of want to cheat a little by using that Revelation text and say, what, did, what, what are the ways of Babylon that we are to avoid? Well, uh, Babylon was renowned, according to Revelation, for its luxuries, for its adulteries, for its kings. Luxuries, money. Adulteries, sex. Kings, power. They knew how to work with those three, money, sex, and power. A little uh, long time ago now, Richard Foster wrote a book called Money, Sex, and Power, 
friend of mine read it. I said, what's it about? He said, well, it's actually about poverty, chastity, and obedience, but he probably thought it wouldn't have sold if he'd actually called it that. The people of God are called to use money well. Yes, there is an individual element. What's your money life look like? If the church of God dealt with its money the way you do, scaled up, would it stand up to scrutiny? The church of God must be careful not to use the money of the world. I think it's important that churches, for purposes of faith, fine, if they've got a historic building they need to keep going that is just a glorified rain shelter like most churches, fine, then use lottery money. But for purposes of faith, the church must not use the lottery money that is easily available to it. The churches have to be careful how they invest their money to make sure it's not used to support sweatshop uh, or to to, um, uh, sustain sweatshop conditions across the world. They're supposed to use it, not just give it away. It's to be used. But churches must use money well. What about sex? Well, again, let's, let's start individual. What about your sex life, your relational life? It was scaled up. Would it stand up to scrutiny? It frustrates me enormously uh, when I hear the Church of God sometimes saying that gay sex is not God's will, but we'll really can't, we're not, it's, uh, we just can't, haven't got the internal moral strength to say that straight sex before marriage is anything other than absolutely fine because, well, we've lost that battle. Churches must not say anything that departs from God's revealed will, either as churches, as denominations, as individual local churches, or just dealing one-on-one with people. What about power? Well, I speak as a member of an established church that's locked into the power structures of this country. Sometimes I'm deeply embarrassed about that. Sometimes I'm proud, but at least as often I'm embarrassed. Uh, Do we live with an obedience to God rather than to the political structures? Do we have a posture of trust? Money, sex, and power. All these are important questions for the collective body. And one of the reasons we struggle, I think, with these chapters in Isaiah is we actually don't care. I don't believe we care about the collective body that is the nation of God in Christ. They were supposed, though, as a body, to wait and trust and pray. And finally, I just want to say that last word again, to pray. Because if we're faced with the big stuff in the world, with armies that clash, with uh, political conferences, with the stuff that occupies these chapters... We have a choice. We can either say, well, I don't really want to know about that. I'll go to the bit that's about Jesus in chapter 40 and onwards. Or we can say, no, I do care about this because I do believe that politics matters. I do believe that I am called to this as well as to being a member of a church. But waiting and trusting and praying can mean something there too. They mean less only if we don't do it. Some of you will be teachers. Well, imagine if you're a teacher and you are concerned that the head teacher 
in your school is about to make a wrong decision professionally. It's entirely in the world. Do we pray about that? What about you are a viewer watching television pictures of the Boston bombings? Do we pray about that except when we come to church? This is the week in which Aviva has announced that there will be another 2,000 loss of jobs. Some will be redundancies and some will be natural wastage. What if you're an employee concerned that Aviva's program of redundancies is going to be deeply damaging? Do we pray other than about our own circumstances? Do we pray about public stuff? with a confidence that God is sovereign, that God is the Almighty. It's not only about changing the course of events, it's about aligning ourselves with a God who is sovereign and whose plans may be different than we imagined. In this chapter, as we close, let's register, there is the huge stuff. Empires are being discussed here. But then there is the tiny crushing of individuals in little Israel and Judah. Little things, little people are being discussed here. And in this chapter, God is in charge of all of it. God forgive us if we take sides and think he's in charge of one bit more than the other. Why? Because no one is almighty except the Lord. No one is for Israel except her God. Brothers and sisters, we need that sovereign power. And the world needs us to pray that sovereign power into its structures. So let's pray now. Lord, at the beginning of our service, we threw the globe around and remembered these tiny countries, Suriname, and these vast countries, Russia, the USA. And each one of us will have a kind of natural place in which we think your sovereign power tends to be at work. Perhaps it's the very small level with us and our families. Perhaps it's the huge level as we pray about great matters in the world. And what's astonishing is that in this chapter it's both. There's no happening happening for which you don't happily recognize your responsibility and our own. Please make us a people who will wait and trust in you and pray that your purposes will be fulfilled at the great and at the small levels, that we may be obedient and find you more and more to be the sovereign Lord that Scripture declares you to be. Amen.